1: Children of the Night, and welcome. I'm excited to announce that we'll be opening for submissions next week on June 1st. This is your opportunity to get your best dark stories read by one of our volunteer narrators and piped straight into the ears of your fellow listeners. So send us your creepy, your terrifying, your downright disturbing tales. Make the hairs on our neck raise, our skin crawl, and our imaginations run rampant in the middle of the night. We're looking for both flash fiction, which is under 2,000 words, as well as longer tales from 2,000 to 10,000 words. Clever, well-written tales that work well for audio, and that truly give us the heebie-jeebies. For more details about the kind of stories we're after, or to submit your own, check out the submissions page on TalesToTerrify.com. You should find everything you need to know there. I can't wait to hear what dark pathways your mind can lead us down. Speaking of dark pathways, let's see what shadows we can uncover this week as we travel through the state of Wyoming. Big Nose George wasn't his real name, and given his reputation for armed robbery, violence, and even murder, calling him that to his face probably would have landed you in the doctor's office, or worse. But George Parrott, yeah, not much more flattering, I know, came by his name honestly. In life he was known for more than his large beak of a nose, though. He was a notorious cattle rustler, outlaw, and robber, too. But it wasn't until about 70 years after his death that he really rose to fame. In part, anyway. Big Nose George and his partner, Dutch Charlie Burris, ran an outlaw gang in Wyoming in the late 1800s. They made a living stealing cattle, robbing coaches, any of the usual activities you picture a Wild West outlaw doing to make some money, and they probably tried their hand at it but they'd had enough of the small takes. George wanted something big. Every month, the Union Pacific Railroad transported the cash to pay their employees' wages by a special payroll train car. George and Dutch had it all planned out. They loosened a railroad spike and wrapped it with telegraph wire. The plan was to hide in the brush off the side of the track, and when they saw the train approaching, pull the spike free, causing the track to shift and the train to derail, making its cargo easy pickings for the outlaws. Which would have been a pretty clever plan if an eagle-eyed railroad employee hadn't spotted the loosened spike and tipped off the authorities before the train arrived. With their plan in tatters and the lawmen hot on their heels, Big Nose George and his crew fled into Rattlesnake Canyon. They were tracked there by Sheriff's deputy, Robert Widowfield, and Union Pacific detective, Henry Tip Vincent. But George and his outlaws were ready for them. One of his scouts had spotted the two entering the canyon, and they quickly doused their campfire and hid. As Widowfield and Vincent entered the camp and found the embers of the fire still warm, they no doubt expected the outlaws had simply fled but before they even had time to draw their pistols, their quarry burst from the surrounding bushes and gunned them down. It didn't take long for the murder of the two lawmen to be discovered, and a $10,000 bounty was put on their heads, which was eventually doubled. But if that large of a reward put any stress or worry on George or Dutch, they didn't show it. In fact, the pair were overheard bragging about their murder of the two lawmen while in a bar in Miles City, Montana, and it was this hubris that ultimately led to their capture. Big Nose George was brought back to Rollins, Wyoming, to stand trial, where he was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. Despite a botched escape attempt and a broken noose, George Parrott, was hanged to death on March 22, 1881. But as I mentioned earlier, despite his story fading into history, it didn't stay lost forever. In 1950, workers were excavating the Rollins National Bank on Cedar Street when they uncovered something unexpected, a whiskey barrel, a full whiskey barrel I can imagine the excitement that went through the men. A seventy-year-old barrel still full of spirits could be worth something, after all. But when they pried the top off, what they found inside was enough to drive anyone to drink. Inside were the skeletal remains of a person, including the bottom half of a skull, from which the skullcap had been crudely sawed off, as well as a pair of shoes. Shoes made from a strange-looking leather. Investigators eventually discovered the owner of the missing skullcap, the elderly Dr. Lillian Heath, who, it turns out, had quite the tale to tell. Heath had been given the piece of skullcap by her mentor, Dr. Thomas McGee, who was one of the physicians present at Big Nose George's execution. It turns out McGee and another doctor, John Osborne, were given possession of George's body after his death, since there was no next of kin. Their intent was to run tests on George's brain and body to try to determine how the physiology of a violent criminal differs from that of an average person. While they didn't come away with much notable in terms of scientific findings, they were anything but empty-handed. Lillian Heath, just fifteen at the time, was given the skull cap, which she used as everything from an ashtray to a doorstop throughout the years. But the doctors had also stripped skin from George's thighs and chest, including his nipples, and had it sent to a leather tannery. From that human leather, Dr. Osborne had a medical bag made, and, you guessed it, a pair of shoes. Shoes that he made a special point of wearing to his inauguration as governor of the state of Wyoming. Adds a whole new meaning to the phrase, walk a mile in my shoes, now doesn't it? Let's step into some fiction. We have one story for you this evening from Jason J. McCustin. Jason J. McCustin was born in the wilds of southeast Tennessee where he was raised on a carnivorous diet of old monster movies, westerns, comic books and horror magazines, sci-fi and fantasy novels, and, of course, Dungeons and Dragons. He attended the finest state school that would have him, with the intention of becoming a comic book artist. Following his matriculation and a whirlwind tour of spectacularly underpaid and uninspired career paths, he finally realized that he was meant to be a professional storyteller. He has been a semi-finalist in the L. Ron Hubbard Writers of the Future contest, and his stories can be found in several speculative fiction anthologies, but The Swamp Devil is his first podcast. You can find him on the internet at facebook.com slash shadow crusade, and he occasionally tweets about his dogs, his stories, and his gripes at Jason J. McCuston. Links in the show notes. Children of the night, lend me your ears for Jason J. McCustin's The Swamp Devil, a Tales to Terrify original.
2: Francis turned at the sharp crack of a pistol shot. He looked up from the tracks they'd followed all morning, shielding his eyes from the bright August sunshine. Oscar's distant figure rode straight for him, galloping across the untended field as if the devil himself were at his heels. "'Dragoons!' Oscar shouted. His chestnut-gelding leapt a split-rail fence dividing the field from a muddy lane edging a tract of marshland. More shots followed, plumes of smoke just visible beyond the field. "'The green horse, Colonel! Dragoons!' "'Everyone into the swamp,' Francis said. His thirty militiamen moved as one to guide their horses into the tree line." The puzzling tracks led into the fen at any rate. Form a line as soon as you're under cover. Francis remained mounted in the open. Oh, at least now I know why a gun crew would willingly go in there rather than stay on the road. The mere sight of one of Tarleton's raiders would terrify a six man detachment of raw continental recruits, going them into such recklessness. "'You positive?' Francis asked as soon as Oscar reined in beside him. The question was force of habit, an excuse to make certain of his well-being. Francis never doubted Oscar's judgment or his word. "'Yes, sir,' Oscar said. "'The butcher of Waxhaw himself, and at least two hundred light horse with him.' Francis frowned at the sudden pain in his ankle when the first green-jacketed riders appeared at the opposite end of the field a good fifteen hundred yards away. General Gates is massing near Camden with thousands of men, yet he sends me and my thirty best out to look for one lost wagon of powder and a single gun. And now we're all that stand between his unprotected flank and the British Legion. Blast the man!' I see old bloody band stuffed at hat from here, Colonel, Jedediah Plunk had shouted from somewhere in the tree line. Want me and Martha to put one between his eyes? Francis smiled at the old fire breather's boast, wondering if he and his Kentucky rifle might not be able to do it even at this distance. Not yet, Jed. He watched Harlton bring his dragoons into an organized canter across the open field. We'll wait till they cross the fence, then give them something to think about. We don't have all day to play with these fellows, and we still got a cannon crew to find. He doffed his tricorn, white swept from his brow, and stretched his aching back in the saddle. The pain in his ankle flared, but he ignored it. He waited until he was certain that the British commander could see him, then raised his hat and gave a cheery wave before turning his horse and leading Oscar into the swamp. As expected, the dragoon bugler sounded the charge a moment later. Francis gave Jedediah a nod, and his line of concealed men unleashed a single thunderous volley before remounting and hurrying deeper into the woods. He did not look back, knowing that the dragoons had probably lost nearly a dozen horses and possibly half as many men in the fusillade. He smiled at the thought. An inhuman howl sounded somewhere deep in the swamp, echoing weirdly through the pitch pines, birch, and Spanish moss. The smile died on Francis's lips. Sudden cries and flapping wings filled the wood as scores of frightened birds took flight. Then all was eerily silent. Despite the summer heat and stifling humidity, Francis's skin went clammy and cold. He had lived in and around these parts his entire life, and he had never heard anything that made such an unnatural sound as that demonic howl. At the edge of the shadowed tree-line, Banastra Tarleton reined in his bloody troops. "'We've lost eight horses and six men wounded. One killed, sir,' Captain McNee said at his side. "'I believe that was Colonel Francis Marion, leader of the rebel militia. Should we pursue?' The young lieutenant-colonel removed his helmet and examined the black plume, clipped short by a rifle-ball. "'No, Captain, this sounds like just a sort of trap into which he'd wish to lure us. "'We have no idea how many sharpshooters he has hidden in there. "'Besides, we have our orders to join Lord Cornwallis at Camden.' "'So as for that damned old fox, the devil himself could not catch him in that swamp.' Francis felt an oppressive weight on his shoulders, a tingling on the back of his neck, something akin to fear, something that made a part of him want to go back into the sunlight and face two hundred angry dragoons rather than whatever was making these dismal wetlands its home. This is foolishness. I've not been... Afraid since the shipwreck when I was a boy, and now I'm a grown man, armed with musket, pistol, and tomahawk, and surrounded by thirty of the best fighting men in the Carolinas. Another throb of pain in his ankle made him wince. I'm just out of sorts because of this blasted leg. Thanks to it, I was absent when Charleston fell, and even now I'm all but helpless when not in the saddle." Doddering old man, so easy for gates to cast aside. "'What do you reckon that howl was, Colonel?' Oscar quietly asked, scanning the shadows in the tall sycamores and the brackish undergrowth. The smell of rotting vegetation and stagnant water was all but overpowering. Francis swatted a mosquito from his face. Probably a wounded animal. Perhaps those Jersey boys stumbled upon a bear in their surprise and sent it off with some lead in its hide. Didn't sound like no bear I ever heard of, Jedediah grumbled. Maybe the Cherokee who slipped back into this here swamp to fight for the Redcoats could have been one of their calls. Maybe even signal in an ambush. Francis scowled. There are no Cherokee in this part of the Carolinas, at least none with a will to fight. Captain Moultrie and I made certain of that nearly twenty years ago. The thought brought guilt, and Francis spurred it away with a kick to his horse's flanks. Maybe freed slaves, then, Jedediah persisted. Sounded like the work of heathen savages to me. Francis did not need to look back to know that Oscar was giving the frontiersmen a load of stink-eye, and deservedly so, if for no other reason than the comment reminded them all of the less savory acts they'd been forced to commit in recent days, acts he feared they would repeat in the days to come. They followed the wagon tracks deeper into the marsh, The preternatural silence grew more and more oppressive, only broken by the tinkle of harness, the soft tread of hoof on damp earth, and the drone of insects. No birds chirped or sang. The creaking of the tall birch and cedar trees in the slight breeze rumbled like distant thunder. Francis was about to call a halt for rest when one of the scouts cried out, Here! We found him! He guided his horse along the solid ground at a trot. Oscar and Jedediah following close behind. When he reached the scouts in their find, the sight was anything but what he'd expected. The growing roar of thickly swarming flies was his only warning. Instead of a few frightened and lost nettle soldiers and perhaps a lame draft horse or a stuck caisson, he looked upon an open-air abattoir. The ammunition cart and the four-pound galloper were indeed there, but the wheels of both had been shattered so that the caisson and the iron cannon barrel lay awkwardly on the muddy ground. Francis took in the details of the salvageable munitions, but his mind reeled at the carnage surrounding them. The gun crew's muskets were broken, shattered or snapped in half, their bayonets bent. "'Blood everywhere and entrails and severed limbs. "'So many he could not be certain "'how many men and horses had been slaughtered in this place.' "'Jedediah whistled. "'Sure looks like the handiwork of pissed-off redskins to me, Colonel.' "'Francis scowled. "'Not likely. "'Probably an animal attack. "'Look for Spoor.' Jedediah shrugged, dismounted to search the area. Francis thought to send Oscar back to the rest of the troops before they arrived on the scene, but a gasp from behind told him it was too late. He turned to see the balance of his force lead their horses into the clearing. He could see on their suddenly pale faces a growing fear— These were battle-hardened men who had never shirked in the face of danger, nor when called upon to do the darkest of deeds, yet every mother-son of them could see that there was something wholly unnatural about whatever had happened here. "'Harry, you and William helped Jed look for tracks,' Francis said in even tones. He'd been a soldier long enough to know that an action was the first assault on discipline.' "'Bean, you and your boys see what powder and shot can be salvaged here. The rest of you, form a perimeter and start digging a grave.' There was the merest hint of hesitation, but the men went to work before he had to speak again. Francis watched them for a moment, then walked his horse over to examine the remains. Even without dismounting, he could see that Jedediah's estimation was wrong. "'These men and animals had not been hacked apart by swords or tomahawks. "'They'd been torn to pieces with brutish strength and feral claws. "'It has to be a bear.' "'Colonel!' Oscar whispered at his knee. "'Just found something.' "'The man's manner put a knot in Francis's gut.' He hurried his horse over to where the old sharpshooter leaned against a birch tree, smoking his pipe, looking pensive. "'What is it, Jed?' "'Hell if I know, Colonel,' the older man said, plucking at his pipe stem. "'I've tracked and hunted damn near everything that draws breath in these here parts, and I ain't never seen nothing like this.' Francis followed Jed's gaze to the tip of his boot, a long, three-toed print sank near two inches into the soft soil. Four feet away, another partial print led into the scum-covered black water of the swamp. Whatever made that print, is about seven or eight feet tall and weighs as much as two men, Jedediah finished. And judging by that stride, it can cover a hell of a lot of ground in a hurry." Francis pursed his lips. Cover them up. Not a word. It was a bear attack. Am I clear? The swamp is several miles long, and we'll need to keep to it unless we want to face those dragoons in open country. I I can't have my men fearing some swamp devil for the duration. Frightened men are beaten men. Oscar and Jedediah, the only two witnesses to the weird spore, nodded. Francis sensed reluctance on both their parts as they scraped the tracks clean with their boots. Good, now we've got a funeral service to conduct and a gun to salvage. Following the impromptu burial, the men gathered up what they could from the smashed caisson and the gun carriage. The iron galloper now rested on an improvised litter drawn behind Harry and William Tanner's horses. The small force had not ventured much farther into the swamp before Francis heard the first whispered speculation. You reckon it was ghosts that got him? Maybe some of the loyalists we hanged? Nah, I think them escaped slaves used hoodoo to conjure up some kind of demon. "'I bet it was a Cherokee curse. "'You know this ground is soaked with their blood.' "'Francis contemplated calling a halt to address the rumors, "'but hated the idea of telling a bald-faced lie to his men. "'They trusted him, and in that trust lay the greater part of their loyalty and service. "'He could not endanger that for the sake of a few campfire tales.' In truth, he did not know who or what had killed those men and horses, and therefore had no grounds to dismiss their stories, far-fetched as they might be. As the talk continued, it grew more fanciful and ridiculous, and was soon accompanied by laughter— if fear had been a progenitor of speculation, it was now replaced by the men's need to one up each other in the realm of tall tales. Just as the sunlight began to fall in the west, one of the bean boys started singing the unquiet grave in a deep baritone. The song was a melancholy love story with a ghost. But the bean boys sang it with an ironic uptempo which made the others join in and improvise with increasingly bawdy and humorous verses. That's enough Francis said when the song reached its raunchiest point. We'll set up camp here for the night. The cannon and powder had slowed their progress considerably as it forced them to keep to dry ground instead of wading their horses through the shallows. He reckoned they had only covered three or four miles since leaving the site of the massacre, but with thus fast approaching, he could not afford to plunge deeper into the swamp, especially as they had come upon a sizable bit of high ground ideal for a campsite. An hour later, Francis leaned against his saddle beside a fire, his bare foot elevated on a stack of firewood and wrapped in one of Oscar's poultices. The ankle had swollen so badly that they nearly had to cut his boot off. Oscar crouched at the fire, boiling a willow-bark tea. Bees boys moved through the camp, dispensing hard bread, smoked meat, and ale. Nearly a dozen small campfires fought against the darkness descending upon the swamp. Jedediah and the Tanner brothers walked the perimeter as the first watch. What about that business today, Colonel? Wayland Bean said in a hushed tone, seated across the fire from Francis. You know as well as I do that it was no Indian attack or even angry freed slaves. That was-a bear attack, Francis said. I'll grant you the average swamp bear is not the largest nor most ferocious of the ursine family, but that does not preclude the possibility of the occasional aberration. Bean frowned, took a sip from his tin cup. He did not believe it was a bear attack, but obviously did not wish to press the issue. "'A gun is slowing us down. We should spike it, drop it in the swamp, and make haste to Camden with the ammunition. One four-pounder is not going to make a difference in Gates's campaign.' Francis flicked a huge palmetto buck from his knee. Bean was scared and was trying to get out of the swamp as soon as possible, if not for his own sake, then for the sake of his four sons riding in the troop. Our orders are to return with the gun, Wayland. We have it now, so all that remains is to get it back to Gates. What he does with it after that is entirely up to him. "'Gates already detests me. "'I'm not about to fail in such a simple mission "'and give the man further reason to marginalize me in my command. "'Not when we were all that opposed the British control of the Carolinas "'in the weeks after Monk's Corner and Waxhaw.' "'Bean did not like the answer, but he accepted it. "'He nodded and rose, bidding Francis a good night. "'When they were alone, Francis asked Oscar— "'What do you think?' Oscar was quiet for a moment, carefully ladled out the tea into Francis's mug. "'I think,' he said at length, "'that there's something not right in this swamp. I felt that as soon as we entered the tree line, before we even heard that terrible howl—' "'Listen, Colonel, do you hear that?' Francis raised his chin and listened. The swamp was silent, save for the sound of crickets and cicadas. Hear what? Exactly, Oscar said. Only bugs. Normally, this time of year, you couldn't hear yourself think for the tree frogs trying to outsing the Chucks Will's widows. It's too quiet out there, Colonel. Francis sipped the bitter tea and frowned. Sure, you don't think there's something supernatural behind all this? I thought you were a good Christian, Oscar. Oscar gave him a wry smile. The Bible's full of tales of supernatural things, Colonel. That's what scares me. We could be in here with one of the rulers of the darkness of this world that St. Paul speaks of in Ephesians. A scream cut through the night, followed by a pair of musket shots, a horrific roar. Francis spilled his hot tea with a curse. "'Help me to my feet!' There were more shots and more screams before he could hobble to the other end of the camp. By the time he reached the scene, the rest of his men were pointing rifles and muskets into the night or waving useless torches." Useless in revealing the intruder, but not in revealing its gruesome handiwork. The flickering yellow flames glistened on the blood-slicked things that used to be the brothers Harry and William Tanner. Or at least most of them. "'Where's the rest of Harry?' a shaky voice asked. "'Something hot and wet fell on the back of Francis's neck. "'He looked up, and the boughs of the twisted ash tree "'hung Harry's broken upper torso, "'the innards dangling like obscene Christmas tinsel "'a dozen feet off the ground. "'Get him down from there,' Francis said. "'Nobody moved. "'Sharp pain lanced up his leg.' Francis was about to shout for his order to be obeyed. Jedediah, kneeling over William's ravaged corpse, said, "'Will's not dead!' Oscar helped him to the wounded man. "'Will,' he said into the ruined face, "'who did this? What did this?' The young man stared into the night, his mouth working for several seconds before words finally tumbled out. It was the devil, he said in a choking voice, those damned red eyes. He coughed, blood rushing over his teeth. His last words echoed through the swamp, obscuring his death rattle. We'll bury them, then we're leaving this camp at first light. Saddle your horses and load your guns. Nobody sleeps tonight. The night lasted an eternity. Several times shots rang out, but they were false alarms. Still, Francis could not shake the feeling that they were being watched by something outside their little ring of fire, watched by something with red eyes. "'It's getting bolder. "'One thing to ambush six men distracted by a mired wagon, "'another entirely to attack a wary party of thirty, even at night. "'No animal would do such a thing, "'at least not one driven mad by pain and disease, but those wounds. "'The heat and humidity came before dawn, "'and with them came the mosquitoes.' He hadn't been able to get his boot over his swollen ankle, so the little vermin feasted on his exposed foot. As soon as the eastern horizon took on a vague grayish shape, Francis called everyone to mount up and secure the cannon. "'You don't mean we're still going to try to get that blasted thing out of here, Colonel,' Bede said." His face was drawn, his eyes bloodshot. Clearly, he had spent the night imagining that it had been two of his sons slaughtered beneath the ash tree. I thought you said we were leaving this swamp today. So I did, Master Bean, Francis said, walking his horse close to the man, and so we are. "'but we are going to complete our mission. "'In fact, have two of your boys carry the galloper today.' "'Bean's face went red and twisted. "'He was about to balk, "'but Francis leaned down from the saddle and whispered, "'You know what I'm apt to do to punish insubordination in the face of danger, Bean? "'Please don't make me do it.' "'Bean's eyes filled with cold hatred, but his jaw set, and he gave a harsh nod. "'Yes, Colonel.' "'Turning to his sons, he said, "'Jamie, Matt, get that litter and gun.' "'Francis watched to make certain the task was done, and done well. "'Then he signaled the men to move out.' The swamp was still dark, but with the use of torches they were able to make slow progress away from the camp that was now a graveyard. At full sun up, he told Jedediah to take point to see if he could find a quicker route through the marshland. The old hunter spurred ahead without a word. There was no singing this morning. The whispers, and they were few... "'which Francis overheard were not of tall tales or bawdy songs. "'They were the whispers of demoralized men "'questioning their leader and his judgment, "'questioning their chances of survival. "'He had not heard such whispers since his youth "'as a fresh lieutenant in the Crown's war against the Cherokee. "'He'd forgotten what it felt like "'not to have the full support of the men under his command.' He'd forgotten how isolated it made him feel. The sharp crack of a rifle shot, then another, more muffled blast, both from somewhere up ahead. Jed! Francis put a spurt to his stallion and raced past the column of men. He heard Oscar's chestnut galloping right behind. Jed! Francis called. "'He caught the faint tang of burnt powder in the air "'and guided his horse in that direction. "'Jed, where are you?' "'He splashed across a black rill "'and up a muddy bank thick with white-studded button-bush. "'Jed! "'Over here, Colonel,' came the reply. "'I'm fine.' "'Francis and Oscar cleared a stand of close-trunked beech "'to find Jed smoking his pipe and reloading Martha.' At his feet lay the corpse of a massive, shaggy-coated bear. Jedediah looked up and smiled. Seems it was a bear after all, Colonel. The old hunter knelt and held up the dead animal's forepaw. Look, only three toes. Francis breathed a sigh of relief. It certainly is the biggest swamp bear I've ever seen. And mad, Jed confirmed. "'The old bastard came on even after I put a round in his skull. "'Fortunately, my pistol found its heart. "'Otherwise, you'd be digging another hole in this here swamp for me.' "'Francis laughed and wiped sweat from his face. "'Thank God we're not. "'And thanks to you, we'll not be digging any more holes while we're here. "'Oscar spread the word that has killed the culprit of last night's unpleasantness.' Yes, sir. Despite the improved spirits and the restored faith in his command, Francis could do nothing about the terrain they had to traverse. Again, the cannon and ammunition prevented them from making good time through the swamp. The further northwest they went, the softer and wetter the ground became— until there was nothing poking above the green-slimed water but tall sycamores, fell trees covered in Spanish moss, beaver dams, and the occasional muddy island. When it became apparent that they could not cross the marsh without getting the powder wet and the possibility of losing the cannon, Francis called a halt at the water's edge. We'll camp here to-night. Jed... Take a couple of men and scout around the edges of this mire. See if you can find a way through. Bean, you and your boy set to building a raft. If we need to, we'll float the munitions across to solid ground. The orders were carried out with alacrity, if not enthusiasm, and he was soon seated against a cedar tree with his injured foot up again. Oscar changed the dressing while the rest of the men hobbled the horses and set up camp. "'Looks like the swelling's gone down from the ankle,' Oscar said. "'But your foot is all laid up, Colonel.' "'Damn mosquitoes!' Francis swatted another one away "'as it made an unnerving assault on his inner ear. "'He watched Oscar closely for a moment. "'You don't think that old bear was the attacker, do you?' "'Oscar didn't look up from the fresh bandage.' "'Neither do you. "'We've been doing this too long, Colonel, "'not to know when we're being stalked. "'And you know as well as I do "'that whatever killed them Tanner boys last night "'has been stalking us all day.' "'Francis sighed and leaned back against the tree trunk. "'Night's coming soon, and there's a good chance "'so is this thing, whatever it may be.' We'll post a double guard, he said, rubbing sweat from his eyes. It may raise the men's suspicions, but at least we won't get caught with our pants down again. Only they were. Francis woke to the screaming of horses and the thunder of panicked hoofs. He jumped to his feet before he remembered his broken ankle. Pain shot up his leg, numbing his mind with white fire for a moment. When it passed and the remaining bone-grinding ache allowed him to think. He saw the camp in chaos. There were shouts, gunshots, splashing water, and that hellacious roar he had dreaded. He drew his pistol and tomahawk from his belt and struggled to stand against the cedar tree. In the darkness he could see dimmed campfires and blazing torches waving frantically against the night. A muzzle blast sparked like lightning and was gone. "'Oscar!' Francis called. "'Oscar, where are you?' "'The horses,' Oscar shouted as he ran to Francis's side. "'The horses were scattered, Colonel. "'The men are in a panic.' "'Form a box,' Francis demanded, "'trying to impose order on the situation.' But he could see the men were isolated in small groups of twos and threes. A few men ran singly through the darkness, eyes wide with terror. Francis grabbed one of these as he passed and tossed him to the turf at his feet. He squinted and saw that it was one of Bean's boys. The young man was covered in blood. He was missing his left arm above the elbow, but did not seem to notice Francis knelt beside the boy and snatched up his belt to use as a tourniquet. "'You're all right, son,' he said, trying to calm the young man who was clearly in shock. "'It'll be all right.' The cedar tree exploded behind him. Oscar screamed. Francis turned to see a towering nightmare. The thing stood half again as tall as Oscar. Its thick arms spread wide and ending in long claws that glistened in the flickering firelight. The yellow glow showed the scaly outline of the beast's hide, glimmered like hellfire in its red eyes. With one sweep of its massive arm it sent Oscar careening into the darkness. Francis raised his pistol and fired The creature howled and vanished in the haze of smoke. Francis tucked the empty weapon into his sash, dragged the bean boy to his feet, ignoring the shards of broken glass moving in his ankle. "'Come on, son, we've got to be going.' He shouted orders at the men fleeing into the swamp, but all semblance of discipline was gone. The swamp devil had seen to that.' One hand wrapped around the staggering youth's waist and the other brandishing his tomahawk, Francis plunged into the benighted wilds with the rest of them. Hopefully we can find some form of shelter and keep safe until dawn. The notion brought a wave of guilt as he thought about his men, Jed, Bean, and the rest of his boys, and Oscar. Poor, poor Oscar, he moaned. As he splashed into the waist-deep black water, the thought of a copperhead or water moccasin was the furthest thing from his mind at the moment. What is that thing? Is it in fact some demon come to punish me for my sins against the Cherokee? Is it avenging those runaways and loyalists we hanged? Is this my fault?' "'Are my men dying because of me? "'Did Oscar die because of me?' "'Though it took a while for his eyes to adjust to the gloom, "'he did not slow his dogged pace. "'Between his near-crippled leg "'and the burden of his injured soldier, "'it was all he could do to stay upright "'as he trudged painfully through the fetid water. "'Isolated screams and gunshots "'echoed in the eerie silence of the swamp.' "'Eventually even these stopped. "'You're fine, son,' he whispered to the senseless boy. "'Just stay with me. You'll be all right.' "'He did not know how many times he said the words "'as he wandered blindly through the swamp that night. "'You're Jack, right? Bean's youngest. "'Your mother is a Cherokee, isn't that so? "'Well, don't you worry, son. I'll get you back to her. "'Don't you worry at all. Just stay with me.' Everything is fine. But when the blackness finally turned to gray and silver, he looked to see that Bean's son was already gone. The boy's blue eyes were glassy, staring into infinity from a bone-white face. Francis hauled the body up onto a clutch of felt sycamores. He took a deep breath and closed the youth's vacant eyes. Bowing his head, he whispered, I'm sorry, son. Rest in the Lord. Something popped and hissed behind him. Francis turned, his tomahawk raised. "'In the pale light of dawn he saw the shimmer of a will-o'-the-wisp above a small grassy island just before it faded. "'A sudden rage replaced fear, gnawing at his gut, the guilt in his soul. "'He looked into the morning gloom and shouted at the top of his lungs, "'I'm here, you devil! Come and get me!' Francis did not wait long before his challenge was answered. He was thankful that it was just long enough. With resounding cracks and splashes of splitting and falling trees, the swamp came alive. The moss-covered beast rushed through the undergrowth in a near straight line. It howled and hissed, slashing saplings and vines, splashing through the foul water. It came on as fast as any horse at the charge. But Francis was ready. "'Come on, you bastard. Come and get me.' At the edge of the thicket it stopped. Tendrils of mist rose from the black water and a heavy silence fell. The monster stared at Francis. He stared back into its unholy eyes. The sun was rising, and he could see the thing clearly for the first time. His stomach knotted as he beheld the abomination, part man, part lizard or serpent or alligator. And there was indeed something of man in it. He could see a cruel intelligence in its glowing red eyes and in the manner in which its saurian head rocked back and forth on its broad shoulders, sniffing the fetid air. What are you waiting for? Francis roared, splashing the slime-coated water with his tomahawk. Are you scared of me? The thing lowered its head and howled. The hellish sound echoed long and loud through the swamp. Then the creature stalked into the water and came for him. Francis stood in front of Jack Bean's corpse, raising his tomahawk in challenge. He held one end of his unwound bandage in his other hand. As soon as the monster neared the small grassy island, he tugged on the improvised rope. There was a flash and a roar of thunder. He had tied the other end of the bandage to the trigger of his flintlock pistol, which he'd shoved barrel-first into the gas pocket he'd spotted at dawn. The flint sparked the swamp gas just as the creature reached it, causing an explosion. Francis smashed into the downed trees, knocked flat by the force of the blast. Bells rang in his ears, as smoke burned his eyes and nose. When he could see again through the fading haze, the beast stood not a dozen paces away, its saurian head lowered, forked tongue flicking from its fang-lined maw. A blackened streak ran across its scaly chest, a smear of blood trickling from the wound. Its baleful eyes studied him. Francis laughed. Well, I've given you my best shot. He hauled himself back to his feet and raised the tomahawk, which even he thought comical, given the situation. Let's get this over with, then, but I'll not make it easy for you. He thought he heard thunder, and the creature stood to its full height. Then it turned and raced back into the swamp. Francis frowned, confused before hearing the crack of a rifle. The shot was followed by a salvo of musketry, and the woods where the creature had vanished turned into a hailstorm of lead and splinters. You are right, Colonel Jet called Francis turned to see his men, most of them. "'In the darkness, he'd nearly crossed the length of the mirror. "'He laughed and gave them a wave. "'I'm fine,' he said. "'Looking at the dead man beside him, his face fell. "'I'm afraid Bean's youngest didn't make it.' "'Oscar trotted his horse into the shallows, and Francis's smile returned. "'The man's left arm was in a blood-stained sling, but other than that he appeared fine.' "'Neither did Bean, Colonel. "'But as other boys kept the gun and the powder safe. "'We've accomplished our mission.' "'Nearly a mile away, "'Lieutenant Colonel Benaster Tarleton lowered his spyglass "'and sat ashen-faced in the saddle. "'He and Captain McNee were atop a low rise "'that provided a perfect vantage "'into the northern edge of Scape Ore's swamp. "'Something wrong, sir.' "'The captain asked. "'It appears I was wrong, McNeigh,' Tarleton said, gaping at what he'd just seen. "'The devil did catch that old fox, "'and apparently he just let the bastard go.'
1: That was Jason J. McCuston's The Swamp Devil, as read by Martin Rato. Martin Rato is an educator, writer, and musician. He has worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, computer science, and business communication, and shorter stints as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. Thank you, Martin. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. If you haven't already, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash tales to terrify. We've got all kinds of deliciously frightful extras brewing for our supporters that you won't want to miss out on. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editors, Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution Non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we invade your mind with more Tales to Terrify.